Hey, Dan. Morning, Rob Page. How you doing? Did you forget my name there for a second? I did. I was like, how do I actually do? I say like, hey, welcome to Art of the Possible. Welcome back to Art of the Possible. I just kind of got yeah. Longer. For those that aren't on Zoom with us, which is everyone, uh, Dan is wearing a lovely melon colored shirt today. Wow. It's actually it's actually like a red. It's supposed to be red. But you're right. I see the video yeah. and it's showing up very melon, which very, is very, very melon, which is who, a new look for you. Well, here's the question. Who in the world can actually sport melon and look good? That's a good who wears melon. Well, Tiger Woods. Even, that's about it. Tiger Woods, um, yeah. which, which actually brings me to something. Um, so you, there's somebody in your I mean, for privacy. We won't say who it is, but there's somebody in your sphere um, of life uh, that is an amazing, amazing golfer. Um, yes. And I am fairly confident. I'm very, very confident. We'll all be watching this person on weekends at someday on like NBC or golf channel or whatever. And we need to have this person on the podcast. I think that's a grand idea. Art of art of golf, art of golf, art of the possible in golf. This guy just went out yes Monday and shot six under at our Arnold Palmer course in the neighborhood. So he's a stud muffin. And let me tell you, like, and it sounds like a mortar going off when he when he hits his driver. It's like boom. <laughs> That's what I was gonna say. It sounds different. Yeah, it just sounds different. Like and like, just we'll save it for the podcast. But the technology behind a professional golf swing these days is unbelievable. Like it, it is fractions of millimeters, man. It's crazy. And like. 35, 30,000 plus in all the equipment. It's, it's unbelievable. So we'll, we'll, let's definitely have that person. Let's on do it. So, uh, so who do we have today, Dan? And, and, you know, so today, I don't know if, uh, this person knows how to play golf or not, but we are very honored to have David Siegel on, uh, David say hello. Hey, I am an expert miniature golfer. Just so you know, so <laughs> know that. Right. I can tell this is going to be a great episode. That's already. right. And and when David puts the click is amazing. Like <laughs> click. Oh, can't even imagine those windmills. Forget. No, I know. I know they're dead. Brilliant, brilliant. So, um, David, you've done some um, pretty um, awesome things in your career. So you're currently the CEO of Meetup. Um, you, you know, earlier in your career, I, I won't, I won't hold, uh, UPenn and Wharton against you, but, um, you know, you spent some time at Deloitte, um, 1-800-Flowers, which is near and dear and Robin, Robin I's heart related to Twilio. You presented at Seeking Alpha and CEO of Vespedix, like just a phenomenal, phenomenal resume, but like, so we're going to talk about some of that stuff. Um, but you also have your own podcast, um, called Keep Connected, which I think kind of probably speaks to the two pieces of this podcast that we love to talk about. And Art of the Possible around, yeah, sure, businesses and how they kind of navigate through, but you can't navigate through without the human side and the personal side as well. So um, do I take like a few few seconds, kind of introduce yourself and we'll, we'll just jump right in. Okay, besides my miniature golfing prowess, which is the most important part of my, of my, of my resume, um, I, it's as you said, being connected in business, being connected in personal life is probably one of the most important parts of being human and, and one of the most enjoyable things in, in life. Uh, I had the fortune actually early in my career of working as a human resources partner, believe it or not. And it's not so common for people to go from kind of an HR manager to CEO. There's some examples of it, but, but not many. 
Um, but if you think about what an HR person does, you focus on recruiting top talent, you focus on motivating people, you focus on training and development, uh, you focus on uh, management. And uh, so it's really been kind of throughout my career that's been that's been kind of what's what I've really enjoyed the most. Um, that, what there, do you want me to talk about? There, there, ha- there has to be a seed to that, though. Like, you know, as you kind of look back in your life, like where did that like my mom, for example, my mom was a high school, public high school teacher for 30 years, you know, pillar of her community, like literally students that are now in their fifties are coming, like come back to my mom and say, thank you very much for just not the teaching. I'm sure she was a good teacher, but like just who she was and how she impacted people's lives. Like, were there people like that in your life or like, where did that come from? hundred percent. First, I also teach at Columbia and that's, that's a big part of, 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 of like where I get a lot of my energy and, and enjoyment out of teach entrepreneurship and strategy. So I, I would say, you know, my mom was a psychologist. My father was a neurologist. So we had kind of the EQ and the IQ, maybe you could say kind of covered from, from that perspective, but you know, I had always grown up and, 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 in a, you know, upper middle-class family. And whenever you say upper middle-class family, really it means upper class family. You just don't want to say it because it sounds like haughty. <laughs> so, you know, no one's ever upper class. Everyone's always middle-class or middle upper class. Right. So, so I grew up, you know, in, in a, in a, in a fine family going to a private school. And of course, I just said, who needs all this money? Who needs, you know, um, material objects? I want to be it. I want to be a teacher. I want to help the world. I want to work for a nonprofit. So when I was in college, I actually worked as a teacher and for like fifth and fourth, fifth and sixth graders. Oh, uh, that's an age to teach it. too, man. Like that's the age. Right? Oh, so that didn't work. And I was like, okay, you know, that's a nice thing to do, but not nice to myself. And, and then I worked also as a summer internship for a nonprofit. And I was like, I don't know if these are the kind of people, nothing about, I mean, again, amazing people working nonprofits, yeah. but I just didn't feel myself um, having a lot of similarities necessary to a lot of people that were at that particular nonprofit. So I, I feel like I always had like the concept of helping people to the best that you can um, and, and trying to have as big of an impact in the world. And I feel like meetup is basically like what my entire kind of life has moved towards because we have an enormous impact in the world. We have 55 million members, you know, in our, in our company, and we have 300,000 groups and 15,000 events every single day, you know, really focused on kind of connecting people and curing the loneliness epidemic. So I would say for sure, I had many early influences and they kind of all brought me to this point. And, you know, so I was um, um, actually doing a little research today for this podcast, uh, believe it or not. And uh, not kind of, I mean, right. I mean, it's these things we do as podcast people. It's crazy. Um, so I went to the interwebs and I actually was reading through the email from the original founder of Meetup and um, and how it was actually born out of 9-11, which was this national tragedy, um, which left a lot of people feeling lonely, desperate, what, what hopeless, what's going on? Where's the world going? Um, now let's fast forward literally 20 years. Exactly. Right? 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and here you are at meetup, which is a, a platform that actually um, originally was intended to bring people together face to face, or like, I'm assuming that was a big part of it. And now you have a global pandemic that literally has social distancing, stay in place orders, don't go near each other, stay away, you're dangerous to each other, et cetera. Not only fueling 
like the mental health epidemic, like you, you know, like the loneliness epidemic that you mentioned in this country. But like, how does a company like so? T- t- take us through that. How did that impact? Like, a, you you meet up, and that's how you think about that in general. Yeah, I mean, what does meet up do when you can't meet up in person? <laughs> yeah, pretty core to the business, right? So when the, the number one reason why we actually rejected groups for our, the first 19 years of our existence was because they only wanted to meet online. And we said, we're meetup. We're all about IRL in real life. We rejected literally tens of thousands of different groups because they only wanted to meet online and they wouldn't have an in-person focus. So we so were I, all- so I, I put in, I go in and meet up and I create a group and I said, hey, we're like we're like the cyber dad baseball coaches across the country and we're all gonna jump on and, and have a, 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 a vigil. You, you just said no to that. We said, absolutely not. We're all that in person. So we, we turned everyone down. Then the pandemic obviously hit in March. Um, our company actually got sold out of WeWork at that exact same time, March 27th, 2020. So that was that was a fun time. Um, pandemic hit and we, we as a management team, we got together and we said, okay, are we about in person or are we about at our core human connections? And the answer is we're about human connections. And in-person was a means to an end, not an end in itself. So we gathered the entire company together, we gathered the entire engineering team together, and we said, okay, we need to enable um, online meetup events. And it's actually, meetup is more important now during the pandemic when people are stuck at home, when people need connections more than they ever actually did than it was before. So in the last year and a half, this is pretty cool, we went from zero online events, we've had over 3 million online meetup events in the last year and a half. And and online only accounts still for only like 30% of, of events. 70% is actually outdoors um, and, and in person at this point. In Brazil and, and in India, of course, that's not the case. Um, depends on the country, depends on the location, depends on the time. Um, so we got together, we said, we need to enable online events. In three days, three days, we got an MVP out. It was a little messy, we got an MVP out. And we enabled online events. Um, and then we've been iterating and making the experience better and better and dealing with time zone related issues. And the reality is, it's one of these things that was a red herring that had I tried to build online events at Meetup, coming in as the second CEO in the history of a 20-year company, I would have been like thrown out by employees. They'd be like, what the heck? Instead, it's actually turned into a really positive experience. In fact, the number one asked by organizers is like, you're still going to keep online events right after the pandemic. You just want to make sure. And I could go into why if you want to after. Well, yeah. So I, I think we can go down the technology road in a second, but like, I have a question around, like you call it a red herring around like online events before the pandemic. What was that based on? Was that based on like the founders beliefs? Was that based on neurological data that you're like, people like your dad did? Like, what was it that said, you know what, online is not going to fulfill the mission of meetup. It has to be our IRL kind of, why was that decided before the pandemic? Yeah. I think there's, I, I, I think the biggest influence was culture. Listen, if you think about how people worked two years ago, pre pandemic, how people are working now and how people are going to work in the future, there was a taboo and you were kind of a redheaded stepchild or whatever. If you were a remote worker. It was harder for you to move up in an organization or harder for you to be integrated in an organization. It just wasn't a thing back then. That's going to change forever. And and similarly, there was a cultural perception 
that when you had online only experiences, you did not have the ability to have the interactivity, the bonding, the networking, the one-on-one type conversations that are oftentimes so powerful in building relationships and in learning. And that's what Meetup is kind of really great at. People didn't have, you know, the breakout groups that we do now as part of it. They didn't have icebreaker or other types of ways in which you could have one-on-one type conversations. They didn't have all these interactive tools that we have today in Zoom and in other platforms that can enable online events to actually be not just like a freaking, you know, PowerPoint presentation to people, which is like a terrible experience. So I think online events as a medium has changed and people's ability. So that's important from a tech standpoint and from a cultural standpoint, but also people's um, understanding about the power of being able to still connect online has changed. With that, that, with that all said, in-person is always better. That's what I would say. If I, if I can have a lunch with you in person, then our ability to bond is just going to be different than over Zoom. It's better. But that doesn't mean that online is not still an incredibly powerful tool and a great experience. It just means, or a potentially great experience, just means that in-person is almost always better. It's interesting. You said earlier, like work has always changed or remote workers, et cetera. Um, I've been in my current role at Twilio for um, coming up on a year and a month or so. And I've met one person in the flesh and he's on this podcast. And that has always been in like, it's because he referred me into the company and we knew each other well before we you know before it. So I, I that's but how was that when you met Rob? Was that like bonding, just big hot bro hugs and just really enjoying it? Or was it awkward? I mean, Rob's awkward. It's always always awkward, awkward. David. I mean, it's a psychological (laughs) problem. No, it was, uh, it's, you know, I I will say it's always good to see Rob. And then we we kept, you know, finally we got to hang out a little bit this weekend. And uh, so we got to go water skiing. This guy's a big, um, uh, Rob's a big water skier. And my nine-year-old son is so excited. That's all he wants to do. And what happens? What happened, Rob? Uh, Dan broke the boat. (laughs) <laughs> Starter doesn't work. Boat doesn't work. Anyway, we have to reschedule water skiing. Um, so in, in in real life can be very disappointing at times as well. So, no, right. Because a water ski meetup online sucks. I just doesn't work. <laughs> it's only, it's only, the only thing worse is going to water ski in real life without a boat that works. But anyway, Rob, let, let, uh, I've been dominating the conversation here. I'll let you kind of jump in. I was going to take a, a slightly different tact. Yeah, go for it. So, Love the fact that you teach at Columbia. I doubt it's for the gold bullion that rains on you as an adjunct professor. And I'm curious about the why. It sort of probably comes to this helping people. But I'm also curious, just in terms of are the possible, particularly given that you teach entrepreneurialism, and Dan and I come from lots of that, um, what do you think is the key thing for people? to achieve their potential in an entrepreneurial way. Like if you only had one or two things, it's probably not VC. It's probably not, you know, a degree from Stanford. What is it? Okay. Okay. Hopefully I remember both parts of the question. Uh, The first part is what I would say is I think most people associate philanthropy as um, about money, but in reality, the thing that's actually more valuable than money is time. And I think what people tend to not focus enough of their time, their energy on is how could I do philanthropy of time? How could I use my time in ways that are really helping people versus writing out checks and things like that? And they're both important. Um, but, but I think that 
anyway, time gets a short shrift. So about seven years ago, my wife said to me, um, what do you want to do when you retire at some point? And I said, I want to be a, a college professor. So of course, her answer was, then why don't you start doing that right now? You know, on the side. So, um, so that led me to. You didn't, start- you didn't see that trap coming. Of course I did. And she's absolutely actually an executive coach. So I, I knew. <laughs> oh, you totally yeah. saw that. Coming, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Mile away. So, so uh, she asked the question, I started teaching at Pace for a couple of years. Then I, I teach now at Columbia SEPA, the school of international public affairs, which is an absolutely amazing school. And, and my students say, why are you teaching? You're a CEO of a company. And I told them it's philanthropy. They're kind of like embarrassed a little bit, but, but the reality is, is that, is that I think there's lots of ways of helping people. You can help people in kind of an inch wide, uh, you know, very broad and just a little kind of an inch deep, excuse me, or you can help people, you know, very deep and not so broad. So teaching to me is helping my 70 students that we have each semester, very deep actually, and and only 70 students. I actually just created a meetup group though um, of my five to 600 alumni who have ever taken my course so I could stay in touch with them and we could continue to share best practices and et cetera. So that's, that's a great way to actually use meetup as a platform. Well, and, and, just, um, and then, but then your impact is also the impact of all your students and that's your leverage point for spreading good in the world. So that, that's pretty amazing. Oh yeah. And by the way, selfishly, we've hired numerous people that are, that are my former students Our current intern is, is a former student of mine from last semester. And we've hired full-time employees that are students. Um, I, when you teach, you learn. And if you're teaching about entrepreneurship, if you're teaching about strategy, then those things go from, you know, what I say, like the back of your head to the front of your head. Cause I'll be teaching about something about some leadership. And, and then I'll say something like, damn, I totally do the opposite of what I'm teaching right now. This is terrible. So, so absolutely. I frequently will end up getting, um, be, being a better CEO because I'm a professor and I'm a better professor because I'm a CEO. And I think the two things work really beautifully hand in hand with each other. And, qu- and quick, quick, quick note to our listeners that are looking for a job at Meetup uh, that for just, you know, take David's class. And that's a, uh, that's a great route. So there you go. Boom. Um, now the second part of your question, Rob, which is what advice would I give to people about being entrepreneurial? So here's my answer. Don't be an entrepreneur, figure out how to be an entrepreneur within your company. So what do I mean by that? I mean that too often people think that the only way to be entrepreneurial is to quit your job, make no money, eat rice and beans for three years, and and, um, struggle, 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 and hopefully maybe succeed, but more likely fail. The other option is to figure out within your job, first of all, how to find a company that has an entrepreneurial culture that really rewards people who you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission, find a culture of a company that's like that, and then figure out how to be entrepreneurial, whether it's starting up a new business within the company which and, and leveraging their resources, or just being entrepreneurial in one's approach to product management, content development, strategy, whatever it may be. And I think I think people don't, people either associate is like, I need to work for a big, boring IBM, or you need to be an entrepreneur. And there's a lot of stuff in between. So that's probably my number one advice in the teaching and entrepreneurship class is don't be an entrepreneur. So and here's a question too, that as a CEO, like, you know, you know, as you, you know, you have a lot of really bright people, you probably built, you've built this culture at Meetup that probably infuses a lot of that thinking. 
how do you go through the, like, what is the process though? Like, you know, Rob and I like sit here and we'll like spin up ideas all the time. Like his early awful mine are like amazing. Um, but you're like, you're going to get all these ideas. How does a, a C-suite or an executive suite of company like literally receive those ideas and decide like, yeah, wow, we're going to, we're going to like do that, you know, cause that, I think that's the, that's, if you're, that's going to be the marketplace, like those are the buyers, right? Those are the VCs then. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, so much comes down to creating a company culture that, that values certain um, uh, capabilities. So for us, innovation, new ideas is something that is valued. We create structure and process around it. And then we close the loop by rewarding people um, for, for coming up with ideas, no matter what their level happens to be. So what do I mean by that? Um, every single person in the company knows that they could be an intern, they could be right out of college, they could be 10 years working, and they can and should set up a meeting with me. And that happens actually all the time for any idea that they may have. And how you respond to that idea is you never say, that's a terrible idea. You say, okay, thank you for helping me to understand that. Tell me about what you're trying to achieve with that idea. Because oftentimes when people have ideas, they're actually not great ideas. But the thing that they're trying to achieve is a really important problem that they're trying to solve. So then if you spend time really understanding what they're trying, what the goal is, what they're trying to fix in the company and not necessarily the tactic that they chose, that could then iterate and iterate so into something good. So I'll share a couple of other things that we do with the company. Number one is I'm obsessed with documentation, meaning even though that sounds non-entrepreneurial, it sounds like boring. Someone has an idea, put it on a Google Doc, just put it, write it down. Because when people verbally talk about things, you know, the game of telephone, things get lost in translation. Um, and also it's very hard to iterate on a verb, something verbal because people hear different things. Put it in a document, then share that document with the appropriate people, ask everyone to add comments to that document, right? And, and then comment on the comments. And then when we have the meeting, it's how can we have not a meeting to talk about the idea? It's to let's have a meeting to talk about the idea, the comments, the idea, the agreement and disagreement about the comments, the idea, where we're aligned, we're misaligned, and all that can happen very iteratively, iteratively, not just like in a brainstorming session, which I don't necessarily usually think is that valuable. So that's one. Two is there's actually a product out there called Nolt, N-O-L-T. Um, I don't know if most people know about it or use it, but Nolt is a really great, a great product that we use, and I'm sure thousands of other companies, where it gives anyone in the company the ability to just throw out any and all product ideas. And then anyone in the company um, can, can thumbs up or thumbs down those ideas. And then what we do is we review them every single week. And we key is we close the loop back to someone. We don't just like have it out there and no one ever responds. We close the back to someone and say, hey, that was a great idea. Just so you know, we're going to do that in a month. We're going to do that in six months or help me to understand X, Y, or Z. Too, too often, people are disincented to come up with ideas and suggestions because there's no follow-up afterwards, which is like terrible. So then, and then people say, oh, how come no one ever comes up with ideas? So anyway, that's a couple of thoughts. That's, go ahead, Rob. I'll say you're taking notes. Yeah, a couple things. Thanks for the tip on Nolt. Um, Nolt, if you're out there, we take contributions for AirPlay. Uh, <laughs> what I heard you say, David, was love the problem, not the solution. 
the sort of some people have ideas that are not good, but the problem's always interesting. And that's classic startup stuff, right? Don't like solve the problem. The what are your thoughts on the kind of people who would say, hmm, yep, I'll go be entrepreneurial at Acme or, oh, hell no, ramen is tasty and I'm going to be the zero to one. I'm going to be, you know, Elon Musk Jr. Of ramen. Of ramen. Here's what I think. I think that people read a lot of books and see documentaries about the Steve Jobs of the world and the Elon Musk of the world, and they get a real disproportionate perspective on um, how often one needs to go from zero to one versus how much innovation can occur from one to 1.25 to two to three to four to five to six. And I think, unfortunately, um, people worship the cult of CEOs that have gone from zero to one and they're few and far between. And I'm not saying that one shouldn't try it, try it. You'll fail. 99% likely you'll fail. And for, frankly, you might learn a ton from that failure. And that's just part of your career journey. So I think if someone has this deep passion that they have to go from zero to one and reinvent ramen noodles, let them do it. Hope you have some money on the side because you're not going to make much money off of that. Um, and understand that that's a path in the journey. But if someone does that and then does it again and does it again and does it again, um, they may or may not be learning from their from their challenges. Alternatively, I think that there's tremendous amounts of optimization and improvement that happens. And even when you look at any of the innovations that we have today, they're all just iterations of things that we had beforehand. I mean, that's the reality. When you look at personal computers, there are iterations of the things that Xerox had done in earlier times. Even Apple has had many iterations. Microsoft is famous for just kind of copying other people and how they, they, they develop their technology. Most of the things are really iterations and, and, and adaptations to new use cases. And to me, that's a lot more powerful than just complete innovation, innovation kind of ipso facto. Yeah, no, I, I think you you look at like Facebook, it's known as the unicorn. You're like, well, it was a so, like social networks were, you know, prolific over that. They just kind of somehow made the made the switch. But um, I think the thing that you mentioned that's really powerful is, and I think it's a big problem in our society, is that exceptions are received as the rule. Right. You're well, like, there, oh, there's a whole psychology around outliers. So this is, this is what we're attracted to. We're not attracted to the clump in the statistics. We're like, what's that? Well, the press focuses on outliers and because, and why is the press focused on outliers? Because they're outliers, because they're exceptional. So the typical reader isn't necessarily fully or, or listener doesn't fully appreciate that the reason why it's being focused on is because it's out of the norm. So then it becomes normative for them from a psychological standpoint, when in reality, it, it's, it's something that is just absolutely extraordinary. It isn't likely to recur, you know, another time. I, I feel like we're sitting around your dinner table when you were a teenager with your neurologist and psychologist mom, but um, that must have, that, those must've been the conversations, which would have been awesome. Um, you're like, no, I just want to talk about, where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Rochelle, New York. I want to talk about the Mets or the Yankees or whatever, right? You know, like I don't want to talk about you know outliers. Um, so Between Malcolm Godwell, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, Malcolm Godwell and Adam Grant. I think it was Adam Grant outliers, or was that anyway? We digress. We digress. Oh, my bad, my bad. Adam Grant was outliers, right? Yeah, 
My so, bad. Sorry about that. Yep. Sorry, Adam. But I will say Adam's latest book, again, Adam, we take uh, donations for uh, mentioning your name on this podcast. Um, his, um, was it, is it learn again? Um, think again. It's like his latest book is actually phenomenal. It's all about actually unlearning things that you've learned. Um, and it actually reflects back to a, um, a really powerful kind of Buddhist um, thought where it's like, you know, the, the, the enemy often is the will of the will, mm-hmm. right? Because we believe that we've learned it. We have this experience and therefore we, this is the right way to go. And that then gets manifested in like our will to do it. And you're like, well, a lot of times you need to unlearn that original will in order to open yourself up to these new ideas, which is kind of where you were going with uh, being open as an entrepreneur. So mm-hmm. um, good. Rob, what else do you have? I have, a, I have a question about the three days of standing up the uh, um, video meetups and doing that in three days and what that was like. Yeah. Oh. Let, let's go there. That's that's an excellent thought. What was that like? So we talked a lot about like digital acceleration with COVID and like how all of these companies literally had roadmaps throughout two years and all of a sudden things that were planned for like the next two years are getting done in three days, two weeks, et cetera. What, what was that like? What was it that like managing that? How did you like figure out the right teammates or how did the right teammates present themselves even to make that possible? Right. I mean, listen, necessity is another invention, right? And we had no other choice. So when your back is against a wall, it's a lot easier to, to iterate really quickly. You know, we saw, we saw uh, events and RSVPs in China drop off like 95% in the span of a week. And then Italy dropped off 95% a week. And we're like, oh, it's going to be like SARS. It's going to be like swine flu, not going to hit the U.S., you know, we're so far away. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, boom, it, it, we saw just a, a, an enormous kind of drop off for obvious reasons, because people couldn't get together in person anymore. So we have a incredible group of people at, at Meetup, both who are capable, but also who are obsessed with our mission and who deeply believe in the the the, the problems and the challenges of loneliness in this world and the need for in-person connections and need for connections in general. So it was it was frankly, very easy. We, we, I got everyone together. We said what we needed to do. And then we just took a very lean startup approach. You know, I had, I've had all of our product managers read, read lean startup. It's a, it's a very important book. And we said, okay, we need to get something ugly out there. But, and, and we, and we said, and we said, okay, it, it, we just need to create the capability to have online events. We need to deal with with time zones, because previously we never had time zone issues. If you, if you had, if the organizer organized an event, everyone was in the exact same time zone. So there's all these things that you don't necessarily think about. Now we had people um, create an event and they had people coming in from 15 different time zones. So there was a whole host of, of, of things that we had to kind of iterate on and change, but um, there was no pushback by the time we actually, when, when, when we did it. And people were so energized by it. One of the things I find is you don't want people to overwork ever. You don't want people to burn out. But it is energizing. When you have three days of just intense work by your top product managers, designers, and, and engineers, I mean, people love it as long as it's for a short period of time. So it was super energizing. And then when we launched it, we just sent out an email to everyone at Meetup from the CEO, you know, because... Because it's not just about launching a technology, it's about how you communicate the launch of that technology, which is incredibly important. Talking about the importance of of a meetup in a time of, of COVID. And we just saw <laughs> like hundreds of thousands of events being, cre- being created online very quickly. And then what we did is created something called Meetup Live. 
which is now the largest um, meetup group with close to 100,000 members of, of that group, where we said we need to enable organizers to be more successful in transferring from in-person to online. It doesn't come naturally. You need to, we need to support them. We need to share best practices with them. So we had like the head of all training for Zoom come to Meetup Live immediately and share best practices on how to use Zoom. And we had different technologies also come to share best practices how to use their technologies to, to make things more successful. We, 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 we created a blog called Community Matters and has over a million and a half people on that blog. So we were never in the content space before and really building lots of content to enable an organizer to be more successful. We were more focused on technology than, than kind of content creation. But because of the pandemic, we created a lot of content to share best practices, to introduce organizers one to another so that they could have people that they could ask, oh, you run a book club? I run a book club. How did you do your book club online to make it as successful as possible? We have a thousand book clubs. Why can we connect everyone who runs book clubs together to, to share our best practices with each other? So a lot of innovation um, kind of has happened that will continue forever. Um, I would say because of the the work that we did and the acknowledgement that it's not about technology because technology is simple. It's about how do you um, make it make it easy to understand how to use the technology and understand how to keep the magic that happens in Meetup to still kind of happen online. That was the key. Awesome, lo love that story. Great, 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 great. The everything from everyone joining together and being energized for that short sprint, but not the, the sort of grinding marathon. Love, love it. I have, a, I have a brander's question as a recovering brand strategist. Um, I think in a time of like COVID here where it's like, it just needs to get out. Like the, um, it, this is forgiven and like kind of you can get past it, but maybe in normal times, the reaction to these kind of fast iteration, agile, kind of a projects a lot of times is like, no, you can't put that out yet. It's going to break the brand. It's going to break the brand promise. The experience isn't going to be what it needs to be. And we're going to piss those people off and they're never going to come back. Right. So, I, you know, how do you deal with those maybe more in non-COVID times than in COVID times? What's your, what's your thought on that? Sure. I think that the way to innovation is iteration. And as long as one understands that the, the, the path to any success is to iterate, then the most important thing is to get feedback. By getting feedback, you're able to iterate and make things better. And the only way to get feedback is to get out there with an ugly product. Uh, you know, whether it's Masters of Scales episode where I talked about to Mark Zuckerberg, where he, I don't know if you heard it or not, where he talked all about kind of creating, um, I don't know what he called it, but just something really ugly, which is what Facebook's first product was. Um, I, I think that it's about creating an amazing brand experience, as you said, and the path towards creating that amazing brand experience is actually being comfortable sharing the ugly and iterating on the ugly. Now, if you need to, you share the ugly with a small group of people. That's okay. Share it with a group of beta customers that opt into it. That's fine. Um, and then and then iterate on it afterwards. It doesn't have to be to your entire group or share it with only five or 10% of your audience. No problem, do that. But you got to share the ugly and then iterate from there. Just don't do it with necessarily 100%. Were there any like purists in your audience that were like, oh, okay, David, um, you are banished because you violated my sense of meetup? Huh. It's a good question. 
we have we have certainly have anti-maskers <laughs> at, at Meetup and and, and non-believers in uh, in uh, in kind of COVID still shockingly. Um, that are there are some of our organizers that we have a strong trust and safety team that if, if they actually re- tell people that you're not allowed to wear a mask, then we don't let them be meetup organizers. Uh, but I, I think by and large we were really heralded because by the time that we we did it in March, it was obvious this thing was here to stay, and and I think the open question was was wasn't really should we be doing this? It was almost like what took you so long. Um, even though we did it in March, why don't you do it a year or two earlier? And and how do we actually be successful? And that was it. It was just Ernest wanting to be successful in, in figuring out how to do it. There was very, very little hate. Cool. Very little hate. So yeah. why don't we uh, wrap up this conversation with a really you know easy, happy question? Um, and I think it's important, um, you know, guided to your students to... Um, anyone, not just young people, people, um, as they, when they listen to leaders and people that they see it like, oh, they've made it, um, you know, it goes back to exceptionalism, like, oh, well, there was this very clear path that was taken and it was almost like fate and destiny that this was going to happen. Right. Um, but as a leader, you know, like it's full of potholes and grenades and chaos and failure and like, like failure, like do you, do you, are you willing to share kind of one of those stories of where you were like, you know, you hit kind of rock bottom and were like, man, I need to figure this out. Yeah. Tons. <laughs> I felt I made it a success. I don't even know if I'm successful now, but I certainly had plenty of failures. And it's funny. People look at a resume on LinkedIn or whatever. And they're like, Oh, they went from manager to senior manager, senior manager, director, and director. Wow. Look at how like perfect their life is. Look at how perfect the career is. Bullshit. Now you can add that out, but like, it's just so ridiculous that people actually speak to people. So failures, uh, it's like, how many do I talk about? So uh, I'll give one example. So I worked at a company that very uh, many people in New York in particular know. Um, it's called Dwayne Reed. It's a pharmacy chain. Yep. It was acquired by Walgreens a while ago. And um, at Dwayne Reed, we created this new technology called a pharmacy kiosk which allowed people to um, interact through video conferencing with, uh, with a pharmacist and be able to submit their script from a, from a hospital, from a physician's office, and not have to go to the pharmacy and then wait around for half an hour and then come back again and then, and then return back to the pharmacy and pick it up. So it just made the whole process of, of using the pharmacy you know, really efficient. Now, doing was kind of not doing well. Um, and I, being right out of business school, was selfish. And I just wanted to keep expanding um, Dwayne Reed Express, which was the thing that I was in charge of. I knew that the financials didn't necessarily make sense. Sounds like we work a little bit, um, but on a much, much, much smaller scale. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I knew the financials really didn't make sense. I knew that there was problems in the technology, but I also knew that if I said, let's not pursue this, then I possibly or probably be out of a job. So and I was fearful about doing that. And, and I put pressure on myself to just keep growing, 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 because I thought it would ultimately, you know, look good for me in my career. And then a new C, the CEO left, new CEO came, he looked at me and he's like, this thing makes no sense. There's lots of challenges in, in, in this. And he was right. And, and then ultimately they put the kibosh on it and they, you know, potentially moved me to something else. Um, but I think the learning is number one, things always come back to roost. And if you know that your product is a problem, 
you can't scale your way to, to putting lipstick on a pig. It just doesn't work. You can't scale your way to figuring things out. What you need to do is take a step back and figure out what's not working. And even though that's painful, and even though that might, you know, quote unquote, be concerning to the higher ups in an organization, it's going to be a lot more concerning if you don't do that. So I think that's just an example where, where I did something that was in my own personal interests, but against truly the company's interests, and then it ended up just blowing up and the thing ultimately shut down. Um, and, and I think for me at this point now, certainly, and for, for, for other jobs that I've taken since, you, I think when you go to your manager and you say, I'm concerned about this business, here's why, here's what I think we should do. What I found is that there's a tremendous amount of receptivity to actually hearing that and an appreciation for doing that. And, and one should not just try to keep growing for the sake of growth when you don't necessarily have perfect product market fit. And, and well, so the, the, the first thing that occurred to me when you were telling that story back to the sort of culture of risk-taking is you probably didn't feel that culture of risk-taking because risks, um, I had a close friend who is a senior CTO in the defense industry. And he said, uh, if you're not failing 80% of the time, your R&D profile is not balanced. Mm-hmm. So, okay, if 80% of the time this kiosk is going to fail, you were you probably didn't feel safe, right? I think that's exactly right. I felt like I would be a failure and then I'd potentially be out of a job and my team of 30 or 40 people would also be out of a job. Um, and and that's right. Creating a, a culture where of safety is incredibly important. Well said. What? And that's and then kind of to break out the psychologist couch, like you think it, it just at a personal level and a, and a kind of mental health level, like where were you at the point where then it found the new CEO comes in and says, boom, it's, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I, at a personal level, how did you react and how did you, you clearly got up and you got off the mat and dusted yourself off and kept going. But like, what was that like? Cause I think that's where most people don't realize like that's the moment. Yeah. I, I would like to say that I was, that I said, you're absolutely right. Um, thank you for, for you're, you're right. Let me, I've been waiting for someone to say that. But I think I still, you know, I was 25 or whatever years old, 28 years old. I, I probably, I, I, I dug my feet in more and tried to prove the fact that we have a lot more opportunity. And I don't think that came, that that really engendered myself to the new CEO and creating like a um, the type of relationship that that I would want as a CEO. So I, I wouldn't hold myself as up to an example at that particular time. I think I was more, I was less mature. And, and, and just was dug in on, on wanting my particular business to succeed. I think in an ideal world, I would have said, you're absolutely right. Let's talk about how, what we could do at this point right now to iterate or to find something else that makes sense. And, and that would have been a lot better way to approach it. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Those are always, always tough in the moment and even afterwards, but uh, kind of get us to where we are today. So um, Mr. Page, do you have any, any, any final comments or wrap up? No, uh, wrap up. Great, great interview. Uh, thank you, David, for your time. I need to get back and to meet up online. I really sort of, this is a commercial for the value of um, placeless meetups and the impact it can have on loneliness and productivity and professional development. Um, my pull quote for this on LinkedIn is going to be, you can't scale your way to putting lipstick on a pig. Love it. And as always, Dan, you and I both know 
this the stories of senior leaders that are that demonstrate some vulnerability and some you know I'm not perfect I'm not this uh, outlier clearly David's recovered he's a CEO of all kinds of different things and a professor at Columbia um, teaching the good shit which is uh, admirable uh, these these things are not fatal you can make these kinds of mistakes and learn from them and um, I love it. Absolutely. I do want to give a quick shout out to uh, Janine and um, you, uh, who's on your team for helping us get this together. And Lisa Swanson on our team at Twilio. Um, David, thank you so much for taking the time. Loved it. Love your shirt. I'm going to try to find out where you bought it. I'm, I'm going to say it's an untucked shirt. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you one. Okay. So I'll get you right. Janine. <laughs>